Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Today we sat down with Dr. Cameron Mirza, a clinical pathologist with many different hats. In this discussion, we cover a broad range of topics, including the field of pathology and medical education. Dr. Mirza brings a unique perspective due to his role as educator, as well as advocate for the emerging field of medical education. He dives deep into aspects of his own career that have contributed to his success and shares insights into things that all medical students should consider, especially the world of pathology. Be sure to listen to the end, and for anyone who may be interested in becoming involved with the Medicus team, please feel free to contact us on all social media platforms and at our website, medicuspodcast.com. Maybe to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, so I am an assistant professor of pathology and laboratory medicine and medical education and applied health sciences. Uh, I work in the hospital as a hematopathologist, so that's diagnosing leukemias and lymphomas and spleen disorders and blood disorders. Uh, I also am the director of the Molecular Pathology Lab, associate program director for the residency, and an assistant course director for MHD. Uh, in the Parkinson School of Health Sciences and Public Health, I am the program director of the MS degree in medical laboratory science. Wow. So many hats. <laughs> yeah. So many yeah. hats. That sounded like a lot, yeah. No, but, but for real, how do you juggle everything then? How do, what's like your secret? Uh, I kind of love what I do. Mm-hmm. I think that's the secret. Um, when I think when you're passionate about the things that you're involved in, it becomes easier to handle. And a lot of the work that I'm doing kind of has overlap between the hats that I wear. And so I feel like it becomes easy to kind of manage. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, I guess if you put it out, list it like that, it sounds like a lot. Yeah. So in addition to your MD, you also have your PhD. Can you tell us how that came about? Um, So I had never intended to do a PhD. I've always been a firm believer that to do good research, you do not need to have a PhD. And um, vice versa, like if you have a PhD, doesn't mean that you're doing good research, right? So Mm -hmm. um, I've always, and I still am a believer in that. So the road to the PhD was interesting. I am a foreign medical graduate. I graduated from Pakistan. So I did my MBBS degree, it's a five-year degree. And then we take our steps. And so we kind of equate into the US system. Um, But then when I had applied for a residency in pathology, I got it, but then had a visa delay. Mm -hmm. So when I had the visa delay, it basically resulted in me losing my residency position, basically. program I had matched to rescinded my contract. And then at that time, I kind of was in limbo and wasn't sure what to do and didn't want to necessarily reapply with the same application. So I took on a postdoc position at UIC, mm-hmm. uh, which I ended up loving the research there. And so I converted my project into a graduate progr- pro- project. And so I ended up doing a PhD. So it was never intended. I'm really happy that it happened. Mm-hmm. At that time, I would have probably been happy if I had just gotten into residency. So it was kind of sucky that that happened that way. But um, it's really great. It, I think it opened up, I guess, an avenue of thinking for me, which I probably might not have had, mm-hmm. or it would have taken a long time practicing to kind of develop. So no regrets, I guess. It's always for the best. Now, do you mean by avenue, like a more analytical approach to things? Or what, what do you mean by that? So I think so. I think it is analytical. So Mm -hmm. if you think about my background, I started med school when I was 17 Mm -hmm. um, because we don't have the same college equivalent. So 
you kind of are pushed into medicine directly, which is great. The education was fantastic, I feel, but you know, it didn't necessarily give me a lot of time to become more analytical or perhaps look at certain things in a way that maybe college would have given me that time. And so I think that all that was after medical school probably had some value, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. One of the reasons why we wanted to have you on is because you've been named to so many different awards. Um, and maybe I can just name a couple real fast. I'm, Please I'm, don't. I'm, you don't want me to go? <laughs> Please don't. Well, I, I want to name a couple of them because, uh, I mean, some of these are pretty significant. Um, so, obviously, the Society of Cardiovascular Pathology, you were given an in-training award. Um, you were Teacher of the Year here for a second. And you've had that multiple times for Teacher of the Year, and, and rightly so. Like, it's very justified. You. you do a fantastic job of teaching. Um you were, okay, this was a big one that I noticed, the American Society for Clinical Pathology, 40 Under 40. Mm-hmm. That was a, a really cool one. What has been kind of some of the best advice that's helped you be so successful in your career? So I always have an out-of-body experience when somebody starts talking about this. It's, um, it's difficult for me to kind of listen to, but no, I have been very fortunate. Um, I think the best advice that I can give is that I have never been aiming for those awards. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are people who want those awards and they try really hard towards them, and I'm not being like unnecessarily humble or whatever. I mean, the point is that I've worked hard towards them and I have a passion for what I do. I think that that's been appreciated. A lot of it has just been being in the right place at the right time, Mm -hmm. you know, applying for a particular award during training where probably there might not have been that much competition or what I was doing really stood out. And I think that it kind of builds upon itself in that, you know, once you kind of have an idea of what is working for you as far as your research career or your you know academic career is going, then the trick is to probably um, convert your normal day-to-day work into scholarly activity and kind of show it to people. Mm-hmm. And in general, I feel like if you have the passion is there and the hard work is there, then in one avenue or the other, it'll be appreciated. So for the awards, I guess that's what I would say. And for the teaching awards, I'm not really sure. I feel like it's, you know, you aren't necessarily born a good teacher or a bad teacher, but I feel like when I teach, I try to um, I try to teach in the way that I learn, and it seems like at least for some years it stretch, it works for the students, and it might not for other students. But you mm-hmm. know, it's been going okay so far. Yeah. When did you first discover your passion for pathology and teaching? When was kind of like the initial first origin stories? I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess there's no aha moment, really. Um, We weren't exposed to pathology just like you guys aren't as a career. Like, in general, medical students are, they think about pathology in the context of step one and second year med school, and it's PTSD, basically. And you don't necessarily get exposed to pathology as a career, meaning wake up in the morning, get ready, go and be a pathologist type of life. You know, you just see CSI or whatever, like autopsy pathology, and Mm -hmm. they're doing that all wrong, I can guarantee you. Um, If anyone is listening from the CSI, I'm happy to take a fee to teach them how that (laughs) stuff is done. But the idea is that um, I was fortunate that I think during my PhD experience, although I had kind of started thinking about pathology during the last year of med school, during my PhD experience, I was exposed to kind of pathology as a lifestyle and career. I mean, it's amazing. It gives you a definitive answer. All physicians need it. Biggest misconception is that they don't assume that we're physicians, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's almost like we have to remind everyone that, oh, you know, we are a physician. And I think that the definitive role that we play kind of in diagnosing people without the correct pathology, you can't start your patients on a journey to healing. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was really awesome. 
an amazing surgeon can do a fantastic job in surgery, and that's really important for recovery. But if they get the wrong diagnosis, the patient is not going to be in a good place. So the the role of the pathologist, I think, Mm -hmm. in general is misunderstood. And I think when I finally understood what the role was, it excited me a lot because I thought that that would be a very cool role to play. I was very tentative, I have to be honest, because I don't get that much direct patient interaction. Some subspecialties do, Mm -hmm. but I don't. And I do miss my patients. I loved clinic and I loved rounding. And so that was a decision I had to make. It didn't come easy. Part of it was easy because of the PhD. I guess after med school, I had taken some time away from patients anyway. And I realized that, you know, I'm not missing them that much. I guess it's okay. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely not because I'm not a people person or, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm an introvert or whatever. Yeah. So what is some advice you have for medical students or people who might be thinking about pathology as a career to really explore it and know what it's about? So you should come shadow a pathologist, and preferably in an academic center. Mm-hmm. Uh, see what the lifestyle is, what the decisions uh, they're making, like how, what results they have. Uh, th- this can be as simple as just attending a tumor board. You know, attended with an oncologist and a radiologist and a surgeon and you know a medicine professional. But the role of the pathologist is important, and so I think if you start going with the role, then you can get into the nitty gritty of like what subspecialties they are, etc. Like we all were discussing before this podcast started, um, you know, kind of make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. You know, as I was discussing with you, people like students don't have pathology on their radar when they start. You know, you can have a mindset of, oh, I want to be an OB or not, or a psychiatrist or not, or a surgeon or not. But mm-hmm. people don't have this mindset of, oh, do I want to become a pathologist or not? So as long as you have that on your list and you have the correct experience shadowing a pathologist, you can, the majority of you should come to a decision that that's not for you. We don't have that many training program op, uh, opportunities, meaning that there are only four residents a year, for example, in our program. And there are some larger ones, but in general, we're not talking of like dozens and dozens of openings. So we are expecting that only one or two medical students, every class should be thinking about this. But I would hope that every single medical student has ruled it out, you know, appropriately. And so perhaps the easiest way would be to just do an elective, mm-hmm. do an elective with the pathologist and spend some time in anatomic path and in clinical path. So you kind of see the whole breadth of pathology and laboratory medicine. Um, I wanted to go back to a couple more things that are kind of like dealing in with your origin stories. Have there been any particular mentors that kind of helped you along your path to pathology or anything like that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so not specifically for pathology, but like there have been definitely some mentors mm-hmm. who I can think back to. Mm-hmm. My fourth grade teacher, I grew up in England. Okay. Oh my God, I love that woman. She was amazing, <laughs> Mrs. Vinskovsky. Um, I grew up in a small town called West Bromwich in the West Midlands, and I just adore her. So not that she was even thinking that I'd become a doctor, but she was really a cool mentor. Uh, then in high school, like my high school equivalent, college equivalent, Um, We had a principal who was amazing, just fascinating. Like, he was so cool. I really wanted to be like him. Um, One thing about me is it's so funny. When I'm really inspired by someone, Mm -hmm. my handwriting changes, and it becomes like theirs. It's so weird. It's it's a creepy thing. So I kind of know, you know, that my handwriting is kind of changing to become his. You know, I mean, obviously, I'm dating myself. We don't handwrite that much anymore. (laughs) But this is a time in the 90s when I used to handwrite a lot. And then in med school, there was a pediatric cardiologist Oh, my God, I love that woman. She was so great. You know, she had a double-barrel uh, stethoscope. Hmm. And, you know, in Pakistan, um, 
it's obviously, I mean, we were in a very good institution, but in general, the society, like it's a third world country and, you know, resources are not that ample. And, you know, we couldn't do echoes, for example, on every kid. But mm -hmm. this woman could put that stethoscope on that baby's chest, distract the baby and could read out an EKG, like wow. just from this. I mean, she was just amazing. Mm -hmm. So I had a little time in med school when I wanted to be a pediatric cardiologist. And then uh, we got a new pathologist mm -hmm. uh, who came, and she used to teach us breast pathology. And um, her name was Dr. Naila Kiani. She's still at my medical school. And I was like, man, she's awesome. So she, I think she had come to the United States, trained residency and fellowship, and went back to Pakistan. And I was like, man, this is amazing. And we also had a hematologist. So hematology in Pakistan is split between pathology and medicine. Mm -hmm. So um, professors of hematology, oncology can look at aspirates and um, bone marrow aspirates inside the mouth. And man, this guy was amazing. Yeah. He was really cool in a MacGyver kind of way. It was just awesome. And then when I started residency training, the people I did hemopath with, mm -hmm. unbelievable. They were like, they're, I was very fortunate to train with them. They're like really big giants of the field. And mm -hmm. just the way they approached, it, as an example, if I was giving them, a, let's say, um, a presentation, mm -hmm. I would literally be using the materials they've published to, oh. you know, as my <laughs> yeah. references, you yeah. know, and it was really weird that I'm like presenting to them and it's their paper. That's got to be intimidating. Oh, it, sure. it, it was, but they were so humble. Like, I mean, they were just unbelievably humble and like mm -hmm. their job, like it was so clear to me, their job was just to teach me. Mm -hmm. I love that. I really love that. And mm -hmm. I think that... You know, if I think of Dr. James Weidemann particularly and Dr. Um, John Anastasi, I mean, these guys at the University of Chicago, they trained me as if I was like kind of like their son or their younger brother and like he was the baby. Like it was mm -hmm. just unbelievable the way they trained me. And I think I kind of want to emulate that in my own career. I'm not sure if I'm doing it to the same extent, but they really were extremely motivational. That oh. was a really wrong answer. No, no, that's, no that's <laughs> we love this. This is, we love unpacking all this stuff. Um, maybe one more to kind of unpack because this is something that I've been very fascinated with. Do you have a favorite failure? This is something that uh, mm -hmm. people that I've talked with, they, they seem to have like certain formative moments in their career where they said, okay, this happened and it, because of this, I became so-and-so. Do you have a particular favorite failure? I know you don't have to. I mean, yeah, it yeah, puts no, you I on understand. the spot. So I think, um, I do. Mm -hmm. I think I do. It, my favorite failure was losing my residency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm in the sense that I think that it completely changed the trajectory of my life in the sense that, I mean, although I'm still a pathologist and that's what I would have done before, I kind of approach things with a completely different outlook. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm much more of a believer of everything happens for a reason. I ended up doing a PhD with a significant emphasis on molecular biology. Right now I run the molecular pathology lab here. Like, I mean, so many things happened. Mm -hmm. That if you if I was to write an autobiography and like I would leave like five pages blank and just black in mm -hmm. color like just a dark time that was the time I lost my residency really it was a terrible time uh, but now that I look back I'm over it and don't have to cry for hours yeah. and so I think that that would be a favorite failure in that I think it taught me a bunch of life lessons like in one big bunch, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I wouldn't necessarily want it again, Yeah. but I would want those lessons again. So I guess that is a favorite failure, oh. but it wasn't my fault. So, yeah. you know, I mean, <laughs> I guess a favorite failure would have been like specifically if I had made a mistake. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I did nothing wrong, which I think could be part of the lesson. Sometimes mm -hmm. you don't do anything wrong. You know, I mean, it just so happens that everything around you is going to collapse in a way that you can't control. And I think as physicians, we have to really be used to that, you know? Mm -hmm. So favorite failure, yeah. 
Yeah. That's a cool one. I like your favorite failure concept. <laughs> we should tweet about it. Hashtag favorite failure. You mentioned that getting your PhD kind of gave you a different way of thinking that you perhaps wouldn't have gotten in medical school. And can you talk about any other habits or practices that you feel like have helped you be so successful in the field? Um, I'm not sure. I think that um, in the start of your career, whatever you do, whatever aspect of medicine, and to be honest with you, even if you're not a physician, whatever you're doing, um, there is a success associated with giving more than 100%. Now, keeping in mind wellness and resilience and all of that, all of those things, um, if you give it 103%, for example, that 3% really gives back to you. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is that you have to do your job and you have to do your job well. But I think that in order to be massively successful, you have to do a little bit more. And then when you do a little bit more, and if you're lucky, because luck has a huge role to play in this, I think, you'll be recognized for that 3% extra. And if you're recognized for that 3% extra, it's like this positive feedback cycle, which you kind of ride, you know, it's amazing. But then you have to know when to stop it because you can't give, keep giving 103% all the time. You know, mm-hmm. this is, if you're talking early career, you might get married, you might have children. You know what I mean? You know, there could be a thousand other things that sure, are happening. Yeah. And so you have to balance it out. But if you just specifically think of career, giving it all you have, at least in the start, I think is worth it mm-hmm. um, because you never get that time back. Maybe, yeah. Um, can we switch gears? I want to talk a little bit about pathology. No. <laughs> of course you can. Anytime you want to talk about Yeah, because I know that there's people who are going to be very interested in knowing a little bit more about the specialty. That's awesome. If that's the case, yeah. that's great. <laughs> Maybe what are some of the more difficult con- or aspects of uh, a career in pathology? So it isn't for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do cut up dead bodies and, uh, you know, organs that are outside the body. So... Uh, you have to kind of have a certain mindset, you mm-hmm. know, towards it. For example, when we receive lungs from patients who have um, cystic fibrosis, mm-hmm. they're not in the best of shape, you know. So in many ways, when you cut those open to make a diagnosis, you can't be faint of heart, you know. Um, I remember my first autopsy was a child. That's something I will never, ever forget, ever mm-hmm. in my whole life. I know this was like nine years ago now, and I remember the baby's name. I remember the entire story of what happened. And I remember, I even remember like the slides have burned into my memory. So, you know, it's not for everyone. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, in general, but that's the case for many specialties, right? I mean, radiology isn't for everyone, surgery isn't for everyone. And so some of the difficult things I think that you could perceive to be kind of harsh would be dealing with death and then kind of dealing with what you would call quote-unquote gross things you know bloody things oozy mm-hmm. things ovarian masses mucin things you know so if you're if you're turned off by that automatically then this becomes a little bit different difficult also like one thing that could be very difficult is the fact that you have to be challenged by the slide if you're not constantly challenged being at the microscope or if you don't feel like you're really challenged by what you're doing um, that becomes very difficult, right? You don't mm-hmm. want to go day in day. I mean, every single day for me, if I think about it from a positive aspect, the slides that I see and the puzzles in those slides mm-hmm. that I kind of try and unravel mm-hmm. are fascinating. I love that, being able to be in a position where I can speak to my colleagues, other physician colleagues, and say, you know what, your patient does have leukemia mm-hmm. or your patient is in re- you know, complete remission. And these decisive kind of elements of it 
are amazing. So you can be completely inspired by this. But then there are some people who look at the slide and look at the microscope and the fact that I sit in my office and kind of do this day in, day out, that can kind of sound mundane, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea is that you have to be able to find inspiration, and it's everywhere. In pathology, it is everywhere. You know, whether you're differentiating whether a five-year-old girl has fever from infection or fever from leukemia. I mean, that's fascinating, right? Like mm -hmm. every single aspect of how you approach that can be mind-boggling, right? Yeah. Or, for example, if somebody has like this big mass that they've got removed and it's completely benign, you know, and you're the one who's really unraveling that story. I mean, this is fascinating. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's different fascination compared to seeing patients, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, in the new epic, um, we can, when I open up an epic chart to read like a history, I can see the patient's face sometimes because they've, they, oh, they, really? they, 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 they have a picture now, you know, yeah. like they have a picture in the corner. Yep. And that's unusual for me, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm, I'm not used to seeing their face, you know. It's important for us to kind of be disconnected a little bit from the story because you can make an unbiased decision about, mm -hmm. you know, what this baby or this adolescent or this older gentleman or lady has. So it's, it's different in that you have to keep up your own fascination and you know, you're not rounding, you're not on the move. I tell my elective students all the time that there could be times when you're just twiddling your thumbs, you know, mm -hmm. just sitting around, but there's so much to learn, so much to learn in pathology, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and another thing that I guess every listener should know is that it's not just about tissue diagnosis. It's like every CBC, BMP, LFT, like every single laboratory medicine test you get, it's all coming from a pathology lab. So even if you're interested, let's say, in the physics of instruments or the chemistry of like, you know, how a BMP is done, it's all pathology. Mm -hmm. You know, if a patient is getting a blood transfusion, it's pathology. If the patient has a transfusion reaction, it's pathology. If the patient is growing MRSA that is resistant to X, Y, and Z and, you know, sensitive to X, Y, and Z, all of that is coming from a microbiology lab. Mm -hmm. If a patient is getting a transplant, um, you know, there's a diagnosis for why this gentleman or lady needs a transplant. And then there's a whole workup for HLA matching. That's all pathology. Then their patient gets their transplant. And, you know, then there are hundreds of biopsies for transplant rejection. I mean, it's so much pathology, but you don't, I guess the umbrella vision, the, the, the lens is not pathology. It's like, oh, yeah, we're going to send it to the lab. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. But it's all pathology, you know. So there's so much to discover, really. So to follow up on that, I am curious. I think um, when you talk to uh, like a lot of these stories that talk about burnout and things like that, um, a lot of the doctors say that like the gratitude that they receive from their patients is what kind of keeps them going. Because you don't really have that. How do you, I guess, <laughs> how do you keep going? I guess, you know, I mean, so it's very important to address burnout. And, you know, yeah. these are very sexy terms right now, resilience yeah. and wellness and all, all of that. To me personally, uh, being able to completely alter the course of a patient's life by rendering an accurate diagnosis, whether it be a benign thing or a malignant thing or a remission thing or a relapse thing, uh, being able to do my job well gives me satisfaction. And I think that that goes, it, it's in line with that fascination idea mm -hmm. that you have to be fascinated by what you do, you have to have a passion for what you do, and you have to derive satisfaction from what you do as well like it's right. it's part of the same thing you kind of have to be in that mindset wellness for me i think um you know i'm probably going to piss some people off but like <laughs> in general okay. like you know these words i think are used so often and people forget you know just recently i was um i read somewhere that you know in order to 
look at burnout and you know figure out wellness uh, physicians were given a survey of like 30 different things you know that they can do i mean and the thing that's burning people out is the survey yeah. <laughs> you know i mean and so it's like i mean loyola does a really good job looking at wellness resilience and burnout and especially in pathology uh we've you know we've been addressing this with our faculty and our residents and so in general i guess i've been very fortunate um that i think for me i i just define wellness as balance mm-hmm. um i have a great family at home i spend fantastic weekends when i'm not on call with them and mm-hmm. I balance things out. So if for example the ex- with the question that you started with if it is that the um, gratitude from patients is what balances some physicians out that's great. Uh for me it's a balance between work and play and just satisfaction satisfaction from, yeah, from thoroughness the, and Exactly. Yeah. yeah. How does it compare to like other uh, specialties in terms of burnout are the rates com- very comparable or is it so i'm not sure if anyone has actually looked at that i do you know i don't want to misquote but i do yeah. know that recently jama had an article about whether people would choose their careers or not mm-hmm. okay like again yeah and apparently that oh my god that was a terrible like bias in that study and that i think that they had only looked at second year residents oh. and there were only like 16 residents across the country that had been checked and i guess the um, number of people who were not to do it again was like 60 like a very high number mm-hmm. and i ca- and i cannot tell you how many well meaning emails i started getting from like you know my non pathology colleagues <laughs> like oh my god we thought you guys were so happy like what's going on <laughs> and i think it was just a cross sectional thing in general i know that there have been publications about this that we have record low numbers of burnout mm-hmm. and se- record high numbers of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. I mean if you think about it of course there are some emergent conditions like if somebody is getting necrotizing facial like you know if there's an infection and we have to be there or if there's a transplant and we have to assess the organ that's about to be transplanted right. or if there's a frozen section there is an urgency like an element of urgency in in that work. But for the most part we you know their office hours mm-hmm. you know we work weekends sometimes you know but mm-hmm. we might not be called all the time. Um so the work life balance is fantastic especially you know if you think of reimbursement I'm not like the richest person in the world mm-hmm. but that's okay I mean I made a conscious choice yeah. to like you know be kind of mid tier you know and we earn more than some our clinical colleagues and we earn much less than surgeons I guess so yeah. it all depends on where you are so I think it's a really uh well balanced life you know in general mm-hmm. let's uh I don't we want to be respectful of your time so yeah. let's keep transitioning um Um so I have another friend who is currently an M3 at another medical school mm-hmm. and he was recently telling me about this kind of a I don't know if it's a newer concept in pathology but it, it sounds very interesting to me. It's, it's so it's called a post sophomore fellowship. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get your thoughts on this because it sounds like a very interesting idea. And maybe just to kind of give some context at least how it's been explained to me in the field of pathology they have these uh third year kind of allotments where students can basically come and do this internship mm-hmm. externship. Mm-hmm. and it sounds like it's a really cool thing because they get a chance to work with multiple other specialties while exploring pathology as well mm-hmm. but I, i don't know what are your thoughts on it i think it's a great idea right i mean if you can if you can invest that time mm-hmm. especially uh, medical students who are thinking of pathology as a career mm-hmm. if you can invest that time during that kind of third year moment in medical school training this is a fantastic opportunity it's like a think of it as like a honorary PGY1 mm-hmm. spot right i mean most of these places pay for that one year and you come and you effectively work like a PGY1 mm-hmm. uh, pathology wow. resident 
so to many that solidifies their uh, thought that they want to become a pathologist. I have not, I mean, I'm sure there is now that we're putting this out there in the world to listen to, but you <laughs> yeah. know, I'm sure there are people who've probably changed their mind, but, but you know, it's very, it's rare that somebody would be inclined to do a post-sophomore year right. without actually really knowing that that's what they want to do because that investment comes with a price and that price mm -hmm. is obviously, um, you know, but it, the investment is amazing because the profit is the fact that when you apply for residency, you've basically been through a whole year, right. you know? Mm -hmm. So, so for example, the, my, I was exposed to it uh, during my own interview season. Mm -hmm. I, you know, obviously didn't do med school here, so I wasn't aware of these opportunities. And in any case, there were people who were interviewing with me who seemed to really know what's going on. Like, you know, they were like, you know, I mean, I was trying to be with it too, but these, these guys and girls were like really with it. And it's because they had done post-sophomore years. And I was like, man, I mean, then I'll never be ranked and because of these people, you know? And I'm sure that that experience immediately elevates you in the rank list, you know, which mm -hmm, makes sure. perfect sense, you know? Uh, I think it's a great experience for the correct candidate in the correct environment. It can work wonders for your um, thinking about like career in general. Mm -hmm. uh, we do not offer it here. Mm -hmm. I know our program director, Dr. Nantharanayanan has, um, and we've been like, thinking about how to kind of fund it. I know that there are programs across the country who have just established them. Mm -hmm. I think it would be a really great idea. I would be all like fully supportive of it. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, so switching back to your pathology gear, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. some of the physicians we've interviewed kind of have like a favorite disease or, <laughs> you know, uh, do, you, do you have a, a passion project like that? Um, so I think I'm sub, so subspecialized, like, you know, in general, I'm dealing with the hematopoietic system, sure. right? So you think of the two arms, myeloid and lymphoid, and mm -hmm. that's basically my world. Um, within it, the person I trained with was one of the myeloid gurus of the world. And so I have, a, you know, a natural inclination to kind of really admire, like, all the stuff that I learned in the myeloid world. Um, Research-wise, I've been thinking about lymphomas a mm -hmm. lot. So there's a specific type of lymphoma, which is called a double-hit lymphoma. Newer terminology is called high-grade B-cell mm -hmm. lymphoma. And so my research has kind of been looking at, you know, what makes this high-grade, why the double-hit happens, what transcriptional regulation kind of underlies uh, this lymphoma going from bad to worse, basically. But in general, like, you know, the peripheral blood smear could be, like, my most favorite one as well. Like, mm. just the fact that this is, like, the simplest biopsy you can take, and it can tell you so much about the marrow. Again, it's just what you try and become fascinated by. So I've, um, this was a very lengthy answer, but I think that my 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 favorite one would probably be looking at a peripheral blood smear. There's so much, so much value mm -hmm. in that one test. I mean, it's amazing. I really recommend that when you guys order CBCs and smears, you should come to the lab and look at them. Come check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely yeah. keep that in mind for yeah. sure. Going to uh, some of your kind of educational techniques, you've been very uh, a huge advocate of incorporating all sorts of technologies in terms of like Twitter mm -hmm. and. I mean, you're one of the few professors that I do follow on Twitter. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you muted me, but that's okay. <laughs> no, no, I have no idea. Because you're very prolific in terms of posting about really cool studies that are going on, very supportive of colleagues. That's one thing I've noticed. Most people don't hop into Twitter as much as you do. What's been your motivation behind that? You know, so during training, I completed a fellowship in medical education research, innovation, teaching, and scholarship. The acronym is MERITS. And, uh, you know, at the time, one of my fellowship directors, Dr. Vinnie Aurora, she was a huge, and still is a huge advocate of mm -hmm. uh, social media and medical education. 
and I kind of joined Twitter at the time and, you know, wasn't really sure how I would apply it to pathology. And then maybe like several years later, um, pathology Twitter really took off where a bunch of pathologists, laboratorians, kind of medical laboratory scientists, even pathologist assistants are on this platform now. And like we're exchanging ideas, exchanging, you know, doing cool projects together. Like there have been unbelievable numbers of, you know, kind of collaborations that have happened. You know, there's um, a dermatopathologist, a very good friend of mine, Dr. Jared Gardner. He's in Arkansas. He's done unbelievable things with Facebook. He's connected with um, really rare sarcoma patients, and they've, like, you know, been able to do research that no IRB or, like, one institution would be able to kind of cover, like, you know, in a single institution at least, like, worldwide things. And so mm. it was very inspiring when I saw all of this happening, and I think that there is, um, you know, there are things that you can gain from books, and then there are classic examples of these things in the books. And then sometimes when you have an avenue where experts across the world are all together kind of discussing things, why wouldn't you, you know, kind of tap into it? Like you want, if you wanted to, you could reach out directly to the president. I mean, it's an amazing platform Mm -hmm. in the sense that there's no hierarchy. You know, you don't care if I'm a professor or an assistant professor or a resident, you know, if I'm putting out good educational material, anyone can use it, you know. So... Obviously, social media has a very dark aspect to it, too. And I've, I have found, at least in my professional social media space, which is mostly Twitter, that it's only been really great, fantastic, collaborative, you know, enthusiastic individuals who either follow me and I follow them and we kind of learn from one another. So I think that, um, you know, the medical student of today may not be on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being on it. You know, yeah. um, but in general, like, you know, what I find that and this is something I've had to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that we have to kind of make ourselves available to the students where they are. And for that reason, at Stritch, you know, we record lectures or do what have you because everybody learns in a different way. And I can guarantee you that the benefits of social media, professional social media, whether you choose Instagram or Twitter or what have you, they're just too numerous to list. You know, our time would go up, you know, would be up and we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be done. And so... I really recommend that whatever you're wanting to do, kind of join Twitter, be on it, have a professional presence, be very careful with that, and then find like potential program directors. I mean, programs are on Twitter, you know, mm-hmm. whether you're doing neurology, mm-hmm. pathology, what have you. Many of the program directors are there too, you know, so it's a really great way to connect. Mm-hmm. So you hinted about, you know, these streaming services that we have in class and we appreciate it. Okay. Um, and you recently wrote an article about uh, the quote-unquote emptiness of the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you comment uh, kind of about the pros and cons of having all these lecture materials, everything accessible to us online, wherever we want to be? Um, can you just comment on that? Can I leave now and not answer? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a loaded question. So, um, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no problem. I have no problem uh, sharing with you my thoughts on it. So my thoughts have evolved. Um, I'm pretty old school. I think that people should attend lecture. Now, that said, I'm also a huge hypocrite because I didn't go to many lectures during my school. (laughs) Um, And I think it's because my role has changed. And now that I'm on the other side and teaching you, I think that there is a fabric that is created within the classroom. And that fabric you cannot get at home Mm -hmm. now or wherever you are. But I completely and 110% back the need for students to learn in whatever environment they think 
they learn best in. Mm-hmm. That is why I know that Dr. Krista Paytas and I are both together in the fact that it should be available to everybody. There should be certain things that are not recorded so that you can f- come to class and finally see one another. <laughs> I think it's really important. I mean, your whole job, for the most part, will be interacting with other individuals, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, or their families. I mean, in six, you have to be able to interact with one another. So you can, I don't think anybody could advocate for like a system where you never come to class, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that that just wouldn't work. And I'm hoping everybody would agree with me on that. Uh, that said, I guess what I would say is that before you stop coming to class, try it out, you mm-hmm. know, because you don't know what type of learner you are really. Mm-hmm. Med school is different from college. Many people, like when they're adjusting to medical school education, you don't necessarily, you can't necessarily use the same rules that worked for you during college. I mean, for some people it works really well, and mm-hmm. that's great. Whatever recipe you have and it's working, that's awesome. Try it out. You know, if you don't try it out, and you'll have to try it out with every single educator because mm-hmm. everybody will have a different fabric in their classroom. The, the, you know, the piece that you mentioned, I think it was called My Classroom is Empty and Is That a Problem, right? And I think it's because it was written not so much as a negative piece. It, right. was, it was just to kind of explore or have the conversation about the fact that if students learn better in an environment of their choice, what if teachers teach differently based on how many students are there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as a teacher, I know that if 10 students are there, I might behave differently or teach differently versus if 100 students are there. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just saying that the fabric different. is different, right? So there will be a difference. Um, will I be less animated? Will I be more animated? I don't know. So when students decide that they learn best in a particular environment, um, it kind of goes the same for educators, right? Maybe mm-hmm. they teach best in an environment. And so do, should we now start looking at educators who are better fitted for providing online teaching mm-hmm. tools? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's some people who sound better, who, you know, whose voice is better on a you know, micro, microphone or whatever, what have you. And there's, there might be some people who would only do best during in-person classroom sessions. And so it's a conversation we need to have, uh, I guess. I think it's an ongoing conversation. Bottom line is that I would much rather have the 10 students who want to be in class mm-hmm. sitting there with me as opposed to forcing it on 150 students and everybody be mad. You know, then that's, <laughs> that's not a good environment either. Right. So I think the answer lies in a balance. Um, have we achieved that balance? I don't know. I don't think it's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, for example, tomorrow is when I will be teaching uh, this new crop of MHD students, right? Can't mm-hmm. wait. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, let's talk to you tomorrow and then you'll, maybe you'll change your mind. But the idea is that, so it depends, right? Will all the class be there? It's the first time I'm teaching them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's their second day of classes. Have they already decided that in MHD they want to sit at home? A few years ago, the class was packed. Um, in between mm-hmm. there were like 15 people this is day one right so they've never heard me right and you know I mean it, and I could be good I could be bad mm-hmm. but they haven't tested me out yet right but they've decided that we're going to sit at home so that might be you know pulling the trigger too quickly mm-hmm. but we'll see what happens tomorrow yeah <laughs> we'll see what do you think is kind of on the the horizon for in terms of medical education so there's been a lot for pathology at least mm-hmm. um, there's been a lot of change mm-hmm. right when I was a resident, 
I know that um, there were like one like 200 microscopes all along the wall and mm-hmm. people would get their slides right and that was really cool mm-hmm. and then it became better actually Loyola was one of the first institutions I think in the country to mm-hmm. go completely digital with their slide collection which I think is fascinating right that's great mm-hmm. you can access so much more and spend such little time on it so I have another thought about that which I'll share with you in a second but yeah. the thing is that pathology has moved in leaps and bounds with this right mm-hmm. So as things are becoming more digitized, et cetera, and like with the use of, let's say, um, augmented intelligence, I mean, things will probably keep changing, right? I mean, I, I always give this example. I remember when I was studying anatomy in med school, my, my parents are both physicians as well, and my mother looked at my Keith Moore anatomy book, mm-hmm. and she was like, my God, look at these colors. That's amazing. <laughs> and, you know, and she pulled out her Grey's Anatomy, like the original Grey's Anatomy book. Yeah. And she was like, look at this. And like every 15 pages, there was like a black and white, you know, kind of <laughs> diagram, right? And she's like, you're already so lucky. And she would joke that, oh, my God, I'd be such an honor student if I had your books, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's true. Like, I mean, and if you think about it the same way, that now it's like you can get 3D kind of three-dimensional things where you can move things around mm-hmm. and look at them inside. On I mean, your phone. On your phone. I mean, it's like fascinating. Like, it'll be holograms. And so I think that it's, you know, it's becoming better and better suited to a better and better understanding of physiology and anatomy and biochemistry. I mean, it's amazing the stuff that you can visualize now. Yeah. And I think it'll only get better. And the part about the microscopes I wanted to come back to, though, was that looking at stuff in a microscope was kind of essential to what we do as pathologists. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we took it away from medical students, it's no problem. I don't mean that we need to go back to the microscope right. days. But that took away the ability for a student to see what a pathologist kind of does, like, right. you know, mm-hmm. like make those movements, put the slide down, like we still do that. And so I think that that was a deterrent from people thinking about pathology as a career. Mm-hmm. But in the greater scheme of things, it was definitely the right step to go in. Hmm. Maybe kind of on kind of a similar third with education. Can you talk a little bit about med Twitter? Because this is something that I'm, or Twitter homework, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twitter, Twitter homework. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So it's something that I'm really kind of proud of in the sense it might not even be original to me. I mean, Twitter homework just basically is like, you know, people who are putting anything out there. Uh, after hours education wise but um, when I took over the pathology elective here at Loyola I kind of wanted to have an understanding of what my students are doing during the course of the day so they won't be spending every single day with me yeah and I don't want to be helicopter mom or whatever dad <laughs> um, so the idea was that every day uh, elective students and this is a voluntary activity by the way it's not forced on okay. them and their grade is not dependent on this either need to tweet something. So if they have a Twitter account already, that's great. They can use the same one. If they're averse to using their personal one, they can make a new one. Mm -hmm. If they don't want to put up their picture, that's fine. They can put up a picture of a microscope. I don't care. As long as I know it's them. Yeah. And the idea was that they uh, distill a learning pearl at the end of the day and put it out there and they tweet it out and that would be their Twitter homework and Mm -hmm. I would get to see it. So, for example, if students are rotating through blood bank or micro or whatever, or even heme path and I'm not on service, at the end of the day, a tweet comes out and I see it. And it's a little, nice little reminder, nice little reminder of the fact that they're on the rotation and they're learning something. And it's been really great. I think that it's taken off in the sense that I think people appreciate it. Um, we have data on it now. The, oh. the reach of like, you know, how, so you can use Twitter analytics mm-hmm. and simpler analysis to kind of see how it is and it's about to be published. I shouldn't give out all of the data, but <laughs> but let's say like over the course of a year, we only had, let's say, between 30 and 40 students mm-hmm. come by. And I would say that their tweets had 
almost 4 million impressions. Oh, wow. So is that a good way to promote your program, to promote pathology, to promote the profession? I mean, it's just fascinating, right? It's just yeah. a tweet a day. And literally, it could be as simple as going and searching for the word pathology and just retweeting the first thing you see. Like, I don't necessarily care about content. However, I have found that people take pride of ownership in right. these tweets, mm -hmm. you know? So if you were to go right now and look at hashtag Twitter homework, you would find there are currently three students in the rotation, and they're just pearls of wisdom. I mean, I'm learning from them. Mm -hmm. So we've published about it, and we have, you know, it was more of a descriptive kind of thing, but now we have data, and so hopefully very soon we'll publish about that too. Yeah. Do the students themselves, do they find that it's, uh, I mean, how much do they take away from it? Do they really, because you said they take ownership of it, but do they, does it have kind of a lasting long-term effect for them? For so them? I can tell you that we haven't really been able to gauge in any quantifiable way whether it mm -hmm. has had that type of uh, effect. I know that there are studies mm -hmm. um, that have looked at interventions such as this and looked at long-term remembrance of certain aspects. I think it depends on where you are in your medical school training. Mm -hmm. It also depends on whether you want to become a pathologist or not. I think yeah. that you know how invested you are will be different. Um, but anecdotally, I can tell you that if I've tweeted about something, I will remember it more, yeah. for yeah. sure. That's awesome. So I think to wrap things up, um, maybe can you tell us, aside from pathology and medical education, what you're passionate about? I'm such a nerd. I'm like a really <laughs> useless person. Um, no, you're definitely not so useless. So <laughs> I have to say that, um, uh, what can I say? So I've discovered my garden. Oh, my oh, garden last wow. three, four years. So my wife has always been the gardener between us. And she was always into the garden more than I was. But over the last two, three years, I don't know what has happened. It's my she old person switch. Oh, my <laughs> God. Yeah. And so I'm really enjoying um, seeing things grow in the garden. So I guess I'm becoming an old man. This is like my <laughs> retirement scheme, hopefully, like, you know. Um, yeah. So I'm definitely passionate about my garden. I have three daughters. Mm -hmm. um, really adore those little girls. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, my wife does pulmonary critical care, so we're both kind of busy, um, but we try and find balance in it. And so there really hasn't been much time to kind of explore other things just yet, but the kids being young. Mm -hmm. um, that said, I was kind of a homebody always in the sense that, you know, nothing too crazy. So yeah, I would say at this moment in time, apart from family and work, I do appreciate my garden, yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Is there any uh, words of advice, or maybe let's let's phrase it actually this way: If you could go back to your, let's say, I don't know, twenty-year-old self, mm -hmm. thirty-year-old self, whatever, what advice would you? give? I am only thirty years old. Oh. What do you mean? Because <laughs> <laughs> you're under 40, 30, 40 under forty. Right? I'm forty under forty though. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so no, what, no, thirty-year-old self. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. What advice would you give to yourself? I haven't thought about that one. Um, I would say, do something that you love. Mm -hmm. It's kind of cliche, but it's true, something that you're passionate about. Um, if you are falling into a trap, which is a rat race, get out of it. There's no point in following something that is not your own dream. Mm -hmm. uh, some people don't have dreams, like speci specified, and that's totally okay. You will find one. Um, but then whenever, whatever you do, give it 103%. <laughs> um, and it's very important to strive towards goals, mm -hmm. be goal-oriented, but not to be defined by them, mm -hmm. um, and always to be humble. Because if they're not humble, then you're basically a, a turd, and every, <laughs> everybody will hate you, so you, like have to, you have to be humble, yeah? So work hard towards a goal, give it your all, and be humble and be balanced. Yeah. 
Thank you. Yeah. Is there any maybe last things you want to say to our listeners or anything like that? Everybody should do a pathology lecture. Everyone do pathology. <laughs> okay. Um, for people who are interested in maybe following you on social media, what's the best way to... Sure. My Twitter handle is kmirza. So it's K-M-I-R-Z-A. Mm-hmm. That's the easiest one. I'm on Instagram too, but it's just pictures of my vacation. So yeah. <laughs> you don't really care, but that's cam5.2, K-A-M 5.2. Um, that's a stain we used in pathology. So... <laughs> to be, try to be funny with it. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions that you guys will have about pathology and specifically or medical education or anything. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. Today was awesome. We yeah, loved having you, you on so here. Much. It was my pleasure. That's a wrap, I think. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.